Okay. Um, so it is, you know, it is a delight to be up here. <laughs> um, I... You know, I wanted to say first that I've really been struck this year um, with the idea that the it's on that the Word of God is living and active in our lives. And one of the ways that it's really been apparent to me is that you know each week we come here and we're all reading the same words off of the same pages, but everybody honestly has such um, interesting thoughts about it or comes at it from such an interesting way or I'm often struck by you know just even answering the questions together like I would have never thought of it in that in those terms or you know uh, um, just how how every everybody's um, just approach is so so unique so it really has shown me that the word of God is living and active in our hearts. Um, so as I was looking for inspiration for my sharing opportunity, I found that while I've basically been ignoring Ezra and Nehemiah for my 40 years as a Christian, uh, others have not. Um, there's a lot written on these books, and there's a lot written on Chapter 4. Most call this chapter um, Responding to Opposition, um, and it, it's often used as a template for what a godly response to opposition should look like. So we're going <clears> to <throat> go with that idea. And basically what I've done is just kind of um, divided the talk into the opposition that Nehemiah came up against. And then later on we'll end with his responses. So... So if we only had chapters 1 to 3, we would get the impression that the work on the wall went without a snag. Uh, So-and-so built this gate, and these people built the wall to this point, and next to them, these people built the wall further, you know, etc. And I do want to say one thing about that. You know, it really did my heart good to um, understand that the names of those people, we, you know, we didn't read them. Um, you know, we, well, we read them, but we just really didn't go into it. But those people are all recorded. Mm -hmm. And I just thought, you know what? That mattered to God, that those people. Mm -hmm. And in times when I'm doubtful, when my heart is doubtful, like, does God see me? You know, I want to remember those genealogies or, you know, that those wall workers, those wall builders were, um, were remembered. But, you know, it, if we only had one, chapters one to three, it, it would sound like there were no problems. Um, the first word in chapter 4 is but, and what happened in chapter 4 proves to be um, the big opposition. Chapter 4 shows us um, some of the problems that had to be overcome in the process of rebuilding the wall. It's the reality check to all the progress that was seemingly happening without strife. Um, we know from our earlier study that Nehemiah found favor with the king, was sent out from Babylon with a military escort, was given provisions and supplies. He didn't have to worry about finances. He was able to inspire and enlist the help of the people, and the wall was getting built. And, you know, that's just amazing, right? Mm -hmm. All of those things just were falling into line for him. But in chapters 4 to 6, we're going to see the cycles of advance and setback that Nehemiah and the wall builders would face. And um, because of Nancy, Nancy gave us all a diagram. And then Liz, where's Liz? 
Liz had to do her drawings last week. I was like totally inspired to make you a chart. <laughs> so I mean, I'm not going to go over all of that, but you you see that you know there's four one to three as a setback, and then and then in four in four versus four to six they advance, and then the setbacks come, and and that's going to continue on through um, through chapter six. So for me visualizing this was useful um, because for me it gave me a picture of what the Christian life can look like. Um, I thought that it was helpful because my heart is always looking for advance. I want to live in chapters one to three. You know, I want to find favor with the king. I want to be sent out with the military escort. I want to not worry about finances. I want to be able to rally people around me and get them to do what I want and have everybody join in. And Right? Like, that's where we want to be. We want to be in chapters uh, 1 to 3. But often, uh, we're living in chapter 4. I... I should know at this point in my career, Ken doesn't like it when I tell people my age. He says, you should use at this point in your career. So, <laughs> <laughs> so at this point in my career, I should know that there is always going to be opposition. Um, I should know that the enemy will try and get me sidetracked or to give up completely. And um, I had that experience just this Saturday, um, I had set aside Saturday to do this talk. Um, you know, I work, and, you know, it's Christmas, and I got a lot going on, and Saturday was the day to do this. And I found myself um, baking an ugly sweater cake with Ava, baking and decorating <laughs> ugly sweater cakes. Ava, my granddaughter, had um, was in a little baking competition, and um, the funny thing is, like, I don't bake, <laughs> and I really don't decorate. <laughs> and um, I thought to myself, Joanne, like, this is the most hilarious derailment of a project that has, that's happened in this house. Um, so I should understand that even though it was God's will for the wall to be rebuilt, um, God doesn't remove oppositions. From us. Even though it's God's will for you and me to grow strong in our faith and to labor um, to advance his kingdom, we should know that he doesn't remove opposition. In fact, he uses it. And what I've come to discover is that setbacks are often opportunities, and if I respond properly, the setback always drives me to the foot of the cross. And guess what? You know, I need that because if my life was only, you know, pressing forward, I could easily forget the foot of the cross. The problem is that um, if you yield to opposition, discouragement and frustration follow. Um, and um, I sent some text out to some of my friends um, on Saturday night asking them to pray for me, and to some of them I wrote, um, I want to shoot myself. <laughs> <laughs> So I would say that was a discouragement. <laughs> you know what struck me about Nehemiah's responses was that he seemed like he was prepared for them. He did not seem like he was winging it. 
You know, his belief that the hand of the Lord was on him um, gave him tremendous resolve to build the wall. And I really think that his knowledge of the scriptures bathed his thoughts um, so that when adversity struck, he was equipped to handle it well. And, you know, that really kind of pierced my own heart. It's just like, Joanne, what, you know, what thoughts are you bathing yourself in? What are the things that you, um, you know, what are the things that are going to be called, that you're able to call to mind when you're in, in a time of adversity? And it just really... Um, you know, it was, it's been an encouragement for me to just like really know the word. You know, I've, I've, I've heard Angelo say, you know, the Holy Spirit can bring to mind scripture if you know scripture. If you don't know the scripture, you know, like what's going to happen? You know, you need to, and we are so, you know, so blessed. We have it. Um, and we have so much information. So anyway, since uh, the first defense against the enemy is to be aware of the kinds of opposition that he uses, let's see if we can become a little smarter at understanding his tactics um, and then prepare ourselves for what Paul in the book of Ephesians calls the wiles and schemes of the evil one. So the first, uh, the first form of opposition was that, um, that Satan uses is the, angers of, uh, the anger of others against you. So Sanballat, the governor of Samaria, became furious and very angry. You know, the, the Hebrew word wrought means burning mad, wrought with anger. A secure and independent Jerusalem would threaten his hold on the area and undermine his control of the trade route through the region, thus hurting his economy. So for the time being, he dropped his differences with the Ammonites to the east. I think Liz hit on this last week. The Arabs to the south and the Philistines to the west. In anger over what Nehemiah was doing, they all came together, threatening to stop the work by violence if necessary. This new work of God in Jerusalem threatened their lifestyle, and they got angry. Satan often uses the angers of others to try to squelch the newfound joy and zeal um, that we have. And, um, you know, I, I know I experienced that as a, a new believer. Um, and I'm sure if we went around the room and told our testimonies, there'd be quite a few of us who um, did not get the response from others that we were expecting. You know, we're like, I'm a believer in Jesus. And they're like, well, at least you're not a drug dealer. <laughs> what? Um, you know, I, I have friends and family who, um, you know, their, their families like threaten to disown them over their, over their conversion. Um, and, you know, so Satan's aim is to get us to cool our commitment. And, you know, I, I think that's what was going on on the wall project too. So the second, uh, the second tactic is mockery and sarcasm. Uh, Sam Ballard and his buddies gathered within hearing distance of the wall and asked a bunch of sarcastic questions. In verse 2, it's, what are those feeble Jews doing? Are they able, going to be able to restore this wall for themselves? Do they think they can complete this project and offer sacrifices of thanksgiving? Can they finish it in a day? Can they revive the stones from the dusty rubble, even the burned ones? You know, after each question, you can hear the scoffers roaring with laughter. And then Tobiah joins in and asks, you know, and I can just like hear him say this, you know, if a fox should jump on that wall, would he break it down? 
Satan frequently uses ridicule against uh, those who take a stand for him. I just uh, finished this book, and I would highly recommend it. It's called Gullible, Gullible's Travels. It's the testimony of Nick Long. Um, he started a Calvary Chapel in um, Siegen, Germany, and uh, it's a church where um, uh, that has become dear to our hearts because that's uh, kind of where our missionaries have landed in that area. Um, but anyway, in, in his testimony, he says this. He's, uh, so he's, get, he's in Germany now. His initial part of his testimony is amazing, but now he's in Germany. I wish we could say the way of preparation was, smoothly paved, was a smoothly paved road, but in reality, from that point on, it was more like a newly opened roller coaster ride with unimaginable highs and lows taking place at lightning speed, you know, advances and setbacks. As we look back at the blur of, of that next year, it's clear that God was orchestrating everything in it, especially the customized trials needed to strengthen our resistance muscles against gossip and slander. A soft heart and thick skin would be necessary for American missionaries in a country that was aggressively skeptical of missionaries, let alone American Christians, not to mention Bible-believing evangelical American Christians, and if that's not bad enough, then dump church planning evangelical American Christians on top of that, and you might begin to understand the muscles I'm talking about. After what we just experienced, we somehow cross the point of no return, and for Sue and me, any intimidation that came to us seemed to be no more of a distraction than a bug smashing on the windshield. You know, I just love that imagery that, like, one, one day these tricks of Satan will, will affect us no more than, than a bug smashing against uh, the windshield. So, number three, threats and intimidation. If anger and ridicule don't work, the enemy can get more aggressive. Nehemiah's enemies had to be careful since working under Artaxerxes, uh, since Nehemiah was working under Artaxerxes, Artaxerxes' permission. They couldn't just rally their troops and march on Jerusalem, uh, or they would be charged with rebellion against the king. But what they could and did use were threats of violence, uh, which they circulated among the Jews living near them. So small bands of terrorists could sneak in and pick off a few of the people working on the wall, and Sanballat could just tell Artaxerxes that it was a renegade band that he didn't have any control over. The threat of terrorist activities put the Jews under immense psychological pressure, and Satan still uses that um, to oppose us. Ken was telling me a story um, that our missionaries told him about a group in, um, in uh, the Middle East, and so they, the, the pastor of the small church came home and found all his furniture from his house out on the street. And the idea was, we know, we know who you are, we know where you live, we can get in and do what we want with you. You know, they weren't hurt, but just that, the threat of being hurt. And so um, he called everybody back to church, and they uh, spent like a few more hours worshiping, you know, counting it. Um, as gain that they could be um, persecuted for the, the sake of Jesus. Um, you know, we're really fortunate. Like, we, we have no idea, right? 
uh, number four, discouragement and exhaustion. So um, in 410, you can hear the um, kind of the song that the workers were singing or the, the proverb, you know, that they're saying, the strength of the burden bearers is failing, yet there is much rubbish and we ourselves are unable to rebuild the wall. Um, the people were wearing out, and the piles of rubbish didn't seem to be diminishing. They'd lost their earlier heart for the work um, that had been resulted in the wall being built to the halfway mark. Satan knows that the halfway point in any work is the most effective time to strike. When a new project begins, there's plenty of enthusiasm. You know, let's arise and build, let's do it. If you get over the midway hump, you see the completion drawing near. There's another surge of enthusiasm. But, you know, right in the middle, things, um, in the middle of things, exhaustion and discouragement set in. Um, I was thinking about our little um, container project every spring. <laughs> I mean, honestly, there are times where I just look at all those clothes and I, and I just, I honestly, I just want to go behind a container and sit <laughs> in the shade with an umbrella and like take a bag of cookies or something. I just don't, I can't even believe that, you know, these people are still dropping clothes. I'm, I'm excited about it, but it's, it's a lot. So, um, they, you know, people just, the, the people on the wall felt like quitting. Um, so, you know, our, our weariness can often bring us discouragement uh, and despair. Um, the fifth thing, negativism. So it seems to me like criticism and mockery was coming from the outside. Um, but negativism came from the Jews themselves who lived near the enemy. These were kind of like friends of the wall project. They weren't actually the builders of the wall, but they were not the enemy either. Um, <clears throat> so they were living and working alongside the enemy, and they were constantly exposed to the, the negative attacks on the work. And, you know, being around negativity is really brutal, and we see it in the world, and we see it in the church. And I think you would, if you asked anybody in ministry what's the harder thing, it's not the opposition from outside. It's like the negativity and it's the opposition from the inside. So, you know, when I was thinking about this, I was thinking about, um, you know, just recently in November, we heard about that young missionary. Um, his name is John Allen Chaw, I think, C-H-A-U. Uh, <clears throat> he was killed trying to bring the gospel to the unreached people on the North Sentinel Island off the coast of India. Um, his death met with criticism from the world, but also from the Christian community about what approach is best in missions in uh, 2018. And, you know, that's a worthy discussion, but I love the headline that said, <clears throat> um, man who has never shared Jesus with anyone criticizes slain missionaries' lack of wisdom. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, where are we in what you know where are we in advancing God's kingdom um, what are we doing in advancing God's kingdom and Christianity today said we ought to admire Chaw's zeal to repent of our lack of zeal and to be willing to pay any price to carry out the great commission and on a similar note we ought to initially be willing to grant a fellow believer 
the benefit of the doubt, to believe the best of him rather than the worst. You know, my, and you know, in our in our culture, we get information so fast, and we're supposed to form an opinion about it, right? And then we talk about it like we have, like we understand it. Um, so I, I don't know. My uh, my own heart was really um, challenged by that. So the wall builders' neighbors were hearing negative reports and threats, and they didn't know what what God was doing firsthand. They came repeatedly, ten times is a Hebrew expression meaning over and over, to warn Nehemiah and those working on the wall. Um, They said they will come up against us from every place uh, where you may turn. So invariably... um, Uh, negativism just became a real enemy of of their their, um, faith. Um, And it just reminded me of the spies who went out um, and, you know, came back with a report that the giants were in the land and, um, you know, we're like grasshoppers in their sight. There's no way we can take that land. Um, and there, but there is a proper place for realism, right? Nehemiah didn't ignore the danger, but um, had, had he listened to these prophets of doom, he would never have finished the wall. So the last one, uh, the last tactic was fear, which is basically the cumulative effect of everything else. Um, the people had seen the enemy's anger. They had heard the mockery and threats. They were wearing down through exhaustion. Uh, then they repeatedly heard the, the gloom and doom from their fellow Jews who lived near the enemy. Um, so Nehemiah saw their fear and exhorted them. Um, you know, we don't have we don't have fears of our, our furniture being thrown out on the lawn, right? But we do, um, we have our own fears, and I think Jess hit on um, that really well. You know, fear of failure or fear of rejection or fear of, you know, others thinking that you're, you're a fanatic, fear of conflict. Um, you know, so, you know, it's a tactic that Satan uses to get us to, to back off. So how should we respond? Nehemiah and the people responded by doing four things. They lifted their voices in prayer. They put their hearts into the work. They kept their eyes on the enemy in vigilance. And they kept their minds focused on the Lord in faith. <clears throat> so, number one, lifting your voice in prayer. You know, often when we face opposition, our first response is to get angry. Um, but our first response should always be prayer. So John Bunyan wisely observed, you can do more than pray after you've prayed, but you cannot do more than pray until you've prayed. Um, Prayer reminds us that God is sovereign even over those attacking us. He's allowed this trial for a reason, and in prayer we submit our hearts to him and acknowledge our trust in him. But what about Nehemiah's prayer? Hear us, O God, for we are despised. Turn their insults back on their own heads. Give give them over as plunder in a land of captivity. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sight, for they have thrown insults in the face of the builders. You know, this prayer doesn't seem to fit with the Matthew 5, 44, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. You know, should we pray as Nehemiah prayed? Um, you know, no one likes talking about imprecatory praying, and honestly, I was just tempted to, like, skip right over it. I'm like, oh, 
no one will know any different. But, you know, it, that seemed kind of intellectually dishonest to me. So here's what I'm going to tell you. First, this is not a prayer for personal vengeance, but a prayer that God would act to judge sinners. Second, since these enemies were hindering God's work, it was a prayer that God would judge those who oppose his kingdom and glory. And, you know, one commentator that I read wrote, to pray for God's kingdom to be established. And we do pray that. We pray thy kingdom come, right? Mm -hmm. So he says to pray that is implicitly if not explicitly, to pray for all other competing kingdoms to be destroyed. So, you know, when we are praying the Lord's Prayer, we are praying for other kingdoms to be destroyed. But as Christians, we are praying that God destroy our enemies by converting them. Um, and if he so chooses, he um, can also destroy them by pouring out his wrath on them. You know, and that is the the that is the final judgment. Um, and so we just need to pray that they would repent of their rebellion against him, right? We need to guard our hearts against selfish motives or personal delight in seeing our enemies brought down. If our hearts are right, we can pray that God would subdue the enemies of the cross either by conversion or by his justice. Prayer should be our first response to opposition by asking God to align our hearts to what he's already doing. So, you know, I'm not in the habit of praying these kind of prayers, but I can tell you that I have prayed drug dealers off of my block um, when my kids were teenagers. I knew they were there earlier. didn't really seem to bother me. I, like, well, my kids are little. What? They're not going to get to my kids. But when my kids got older, I was like, okay, Lord, like, you got to do something about these people now. <laughs> and uh, the Lord intervened. They're gone. Um... Uh, we've prayed that the Lord would intervene. Um, my husband and his friends were starting a Bible study in um, a Catholic church. Ken was leading the Bible study. <laughs> it's kind of hilarious, you know. There's a Protestant leading a Bible study in the Catholic church. Um, one, it was one of the leaders, and there was a nun and a priest, like, totally opposed to this. And um, guess what? They were transferred. Like, they were just gone. Mm. And we we really, we had just prayed, like, Lord, what are we going to do about this? Like, we we want your work to go forward. Mm. We didn't do anything else. We didn't go to the anybody to complain. Just, like, prayed about it. Um, and I've prayed aggressive work colleagues out of the building where I round. Um, <laughs> and honestly, I'm not kidding you. This just happened. I, I had an incident. You know, I've been in this the same work for a long time now. You, the People just kind of get recycled through places. It's a small community. Um, when I tell you my heart sank, I saw someone come onto a floor, and when I saw them, this person, like, threw me under a bus years ago, and I'm really naive. Like, I don't really believe anyone intends me any harm, so normally I've got to be, like, under the bus for a while before I even realize, like, Joanne, like, you're under the bus. Like, how'd you get here? <laughs> and I saw her come down the hall, and I had a physical response to seeing her. And I just thought, okay, what like what am I going to do about this? How am I going to get rid of her? What, you know, what can I do? And I just said, 
I can't do anything. I just got to pray. And I did pray, and next week she wasn't there, but I thought, well, maybe she was busy doing something else. Gone. <laughs> Goodbye. Wow. So I just, I, did, I was like, Lord, if this woman, you know, the prayer is generally this. If this person intends me harm or my family harm or your work harm, then you need to handle it. And so, you know, I hope that's an encouragement, and I hope I remember that more often than trying to, you know, fix it for myself. Okay, they put their hearts into the work. Um, the people had a heart to work. Um, um, they, you know, they were, they were excited about doing the work, but, you know, all of these, this opposition just really um, just was coming against them. And so by continuing to do the thing they knew, they knew to do, Soon the enemy was looking at them, having to look up at them instead of just looking across over the wall at them. Um, so, you know, the idea here is that um, Charles Spurgeon called his magazine the sword and the trowel. You know, the sword is the power of the, the word of God and the trowel is the work that we do. And, you know, this is what just keep doing the work. Uh, the third thing they did was they kept their eye on the enemy in vigilance. Uh, Nehemiah prayed first, but then he set up a guard. Um, he didn't pray. His prayer was not that the enemy would go away. Um, sorry. Nehemiah's prayer didn't make the enemy go away. Instead, the enemy upped their threats. So prayer isn't a magic cure-all. It doesn't mean that you can ignore the enemy's attack or pretend they don't exist. He was vigilant to arm the workers and post guards around the clock. He put into place a warning system so that when the trumpet was blown, the workers would quickly rally to defend their families. Um, you know, even that verse that says they didn't take off their clothes, right? They were so vigilant. They knew their enemy, and they wanted to be ready. Um, so Nehemiah and his people responded to the enemy's opposition by lifting their voices in prayer, putting their hearts into the work, by remaining vigilant and finally keeping their minds focused on, on the Lord. Um, Nehemiah says, Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your houses. Um, so um, when the opposition hits, it's easy to get your focus off of God and onto your problems. Um, and at such a time, Paul tells us, Set your mind on things above, not on things that are on earth. So, ladies, uh, when we experience opposition, as we know we will, from our beautiful chart here, <laughs> um, and those of you in leadership, you're going to experience opposition, we would be well served to respond, as Nehemiah did, with prayer, keeping on with the work, being vigilant against the enemy, and keeping our focus on the great and awesome God we serve. Amen. Amen.